You're listening to the Education Policy Podcast with Martin and Rob from Community. In this episode, we look at the school's white paper, the Queen's speech and the school's bill in the here and now. We focus on social media and how you can protect yourself in your working life and we bust those long COVID myths. So hello once again. It's now the May 2022 edition of the Education Policy Podcast for England. A huge thank you to all those who were first of all involved with last month's Stephen Lawrence Day special episode and to those of you who downloaded and listened to it. It's still available to download now from Podbean, Google, Amazon, Apple, TuneIn, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts from. So please, if you've not done so yet, do take a listen. It was a really special episode. If you're a brand new listener, you are especially welcome to this episode. And if you're a regular, then it's wonderful to have you back with us once again. Thank you to those of you who already subscribe and get this podcast delivered to you every single month. Subscribing is really easy. It's just one click and that is the best way for you to get the podcast delivered to your device as soon as it's published. And do let your friends and colleagues know and share widely with anyone you think could be interested and make sure you leave us a review and let us know where you're listening to us from. So, Martin, here we are again, once more, May 2022 Mm. uh, edition of the podcast. And the school's white paper you want to start us off on this month. Yes. Thanks, Rob. The government published a school's white paper shortly before half term, which outlined the priorities for them over the coming years. Those intentions have now been published as part of the school's bill, which was outlined in the Queen's speech last week. Now, Helen Osgood, our National Officer for Education and Early Years, commented on the schools and higher education bills in the Queen's speech, saying that the school's bill tinkers around the edges and largely avoids the real issues of education, which are underfunding, educational recovering, needing support for mental health and well-being, staff shortages, recruitment and retention issues, pay conditions, workload. And of course, the early years once again was overlooked. We have raised these and will continue to raise these in our discussions with the government. Is there anything we got particular concerns about that was in the schools bill? So the schools bill is very wide ranging some of the issues in it are quite vague. You'd think that the vagueness might mean that we don't have anything particular to worry about, but actually the vagueness gives us a real cause for concern because until we know the detail of some of these proposals, it's very difficult to know how wide-ranging they might be. For example, uh, we are broadly supportive of the school's white paper outline that the national curriculum might become a part of academies teaching rather than just maintain schools. However, until we see more detail about that, we don't know exactly how broad and balanced that national curriculum going forward will be, whether there will be any changes to content and what that might mean for staff in schools and their workload. We also know that the document outlines a series of new powers for the Secretary of State. And these things give us real cause for concern because These are issues that should be properly debated. These are issues which would normally go through Parliament for full consultation uh, with MPs and would have also come to us as unions. These are our concerns at the moment, but until we've got a little bit more detail on them, it's difficult to know how urgent these matters are. 
As with the other issues raised in the schools bill, we will continue discussing this with the government and we'll update our members as soon as we have something concrete to tell them. I hope those changes to the national curriculum, Martin, still allow for schools to decide on elements of their own curriculum because I was listening to um, an interview on, on Five Live this week and they were talking to a head teacher in South London who was saying, uh, you know, their school's got over 100 languages spoken by the students and a real broad range of students from lots of different countries, lots of different areas in the world, lots of different cultural backgrounds, and that one of the things they're able to do is tweak what they teach students to cover lots of different things that would be useful to them, whether it's stuff that's happened locally from where the school is or other things around the world. I hope, I imagine we hope, that um, that the the curriculum doesn't become too prescriptive, allowing schools still to uh, teach things that are pertinent to their students. Yeah, I agree. I mean, at the moment, the level of prescription within the curriculum is quite high. Um, There is just so much content that has to be covered, particularly in the GCSE and A-level syllabus. The uh, sheer volume of content doesn't really allow schools to have any local flexibilities. Um, But it would be really good if schools were able to reflect their local area and uh, their community in some of the things that they teach, whilst also adhering to a broad and balanced curriculum. I guess really all I can say is we'll have to wait and see how that uh, develops over the coming months and years. Okay, so moving on a little bit then to childcare ratios. Um, The Department for Education has said they'll consult on plans to raise the number of two-year-olds that one member of staff can care for in early year settings from four to five. Uh, I think Letitia McCalla, our early years lead, I think she's had something to say on this, hasn't she? Yes, uh, she noted that Uh, Instead of cutting corners on health and safety standards, we would like the government to be investing more money into early years provision to tackle the ongoing funding issues and particularly the recruitment and retention crisis. We have mentioned time and time again to the government that the free funding entitlement does not actually cover the cost of childcare in the early year settings. And so this leads to low wages, which means that we have a poorly paid workforce. They're brilliant. They work so hard to care for our children and they deserve to be paid well for the work that they do, especially given the impact that they are having on the youngest children, a really, really important part of their life. Children, parents, staff, they all deserve better than having a childcare ratio change, which is what the government are proposing. We don't think that these proposals will deliver the intended cost savings for parents. We just think that they will increase stress levels for staff within the settings, which is likely to exacerbate the existing recruitment and retention issues. Yeah. So any of our official responses, they are available on our website. If you want to read them in full, they're always published there. And we often include them in our bi-monthly sectoral uh, mail out that you'll receive via email. And if you're not receiving them via email, it's perhaps worth checking with us that we have your most up-to-date details. Okay, moving on to your working life. And in this section, this month, we're going to take a little bit of a look at social media. In particular, we're going to think about social media in relation to the interview and recruitment process. Now, checking up on people's social media is, sadly, already not unusual in the world of employment. Uh, but it's not been a recommendation for school workforces before. You may remember us mentioning in a previous podcast about the Department for Education changes to the Keeping Children Safe in Education. 
And one of those proposed changes um, is about social media and safer recruitment guidance. So we were asked to comment in particular on this recommendation that employers should carry out an online search in respect of candidates shortlisted for interview and that that search should include checks on their social media. Now, it's important to note that whilst you might believe that your social media content is private, anything and everything that is posted on the Internet is public and it can remain there forever. So if you are posting things on social media that you intend to be private, you need to lock those privacy settings down tight and particularly to make sure that you know all of the people that you are connected with, all of your contacts and friends. And just that really is so important. And this also applies to uh, your LinkedIn page. And I think that's one of the things that certainly former colleagues of mine and maybe even myself at one point has been guilty of sort of forgetting. So even if it's just your name and your profile picture on LinkedIn, it is things that employers or students can find. Um, now, most employers will already have a policy covering the acceptable conduct of staff uh, with, with regards to social media and bringing your employer into disrepute online is usually grounds for dismissal. So that's, you know, that kind of goes without saying. I think for most people, it's relatively common sense that you, you shouldn't be saying anything that could be deemed as bringing your employer into disrepute online on your social media, no matter how locked down it is, because you may have colleagues that are friends on social media who might see it and then, you know, things can get out. So do make sure that you follow any policy requirements to the letter. Now, this is likely to include what, Martin? Can you run a few some of those things you think that's likely to include? You've already mentioned not making negative comments about your employer, even if they're legitimate. Don't forget, social media is a written forum, so you are making written comments. Once posted, you lose control of these written comments. And if your post is defamatory in any way, your employer could begin legal action against you. So top of the list is do not make negative comments about your employer. And I would just add to that that it's not necessarily just social media. You know, be very, very, very careful what you're saying in things like group chats on WhatsApp and things like that, because it's very easy for those to be screenshotted and shared with uh, senior management. Of course, it's not just about not making negative comments about your employer. It's also a good idea not to discuss colleagues and pupils, either current or former ones, either. Don't even try to anonymise them because other people that you connect with might still be able to identify who you're talking about from your description and from the circumstance. Again, in the same way as making negative comments about your employer, don't make negative comments or discuss your colleagues or pupils online. It's just not worth it. Similarly, don't befriend pupils and maybe even don't befriend former pupils online. This can often be viewed as professional misconduct and however innocent, it could be viewed as an inappropriate relationship. Where this can be difficult is where you know the pupil outside of the workplace, for example, if they're a relative. In these instances, we would recommend that you are wise to speak with your manager or head teacher for advice. But it is worth pointing out that most social media platforms have minimum age requirements and you'd be sensible to support those minimum age requirements by not befriending anyone below those rules. Some schools and workplaces, classes and teachers have started using social media, things like Twitter, to communicate with their students outside of the classroom. I myself used to have a professional Twitter account that where I 
shared articles I might want my sick formers to read or information on reminders on homework and study classes and that was all done with the express knowledge and permission of my line manager at the time my head of department and the, and the deputy head of the school and so on uh, who were very aware of it um, and you know it's all very open and could be monitored but there's a very separate account from any personal accounts as well so if you're going to do something like that again just be advised to make sure that management know about it and you've had that conversation with them before you start something like that yeah absolutely and on that line be careful what you retweet because it's not just what you say and what you do but it's what you like you know if you like a facebook post or if you retweet something you are tacitly giving your support your endorsement your agreement to the original post or the author's view this is something you need to be careful of around public holidays and public events such as remembrance because certain organizations can try to hijack those events so always make sure you know what it is that you are retweeting or liking before you do that because of how it can seem to others. We see that all the time, don't we, uh, with things like politicians, you know, retweeting something by somebody and they've not really taken had a proper read of it. If you're going to retweet something, you really need to have read like every word of the article uh, or made sure that you you know who's written the article so you can't be accused of, of supporting a particular individual who may not have a very good um, public image uh, in the first place. So be really mindful of that. And I think also it's just worth saying here that the argument of it something being banter or a joke is unlikely to wash very much with an employer if you've put something online. I say to people all the time when I'm giving advice to members, and it's not just about social media, but things written down can be interpreted in lots of different ways. Having things written down can be really helpful to us sometimes because we've got a record of what's been said by people. What things that are written down don't include is the intention context. or the, the context around it. So, so do make sure that you're really, really careful with whatever you post online. You're in a position of responsibility as someone working with children, uh, and that's not to be forgotten. One more point, Martin, I think you've got one more point that actually comes hard on the back of that is it's not just about what you post. It's not just about what you like or retweet. It's about what other people might say that involves you. So be wary about what friends post about you. Don't forget that as well as what you post, other people might be posting that embarrassing photo from last year's summer holiday or that embarrassing picture of the hen party that you went to. Think about how these posts will be viewed by any potential or current employer and maybe have a word with your friends just to be on the safe side. So some things that you can do include, first of all, and one of the most important things, review all of your privacy settings. Now, I know we, we might have sounded like it's all a very negative and scary world of social media when you've got this position of responsibility, but it is really important. Really lock it down as tight as you can and make sure that if you are going to have social media, that it is as private as you can possibly make it. Review your friends, your contact lists regularly. Make sure that you actually need these people on your friendship lists. Make sure perhaps that you even know them. It's very, very easy to accept a friend link from someone that you don't actually know or don't know very well. So 
be sure to review your friends and contact lists regularly. And if you started your, you know, let's say your Facebook profile when you were 13 and now you're going into teaching at sort of 21, 22 years old, that's a, almost a decade's gap. You know, it's, it's perhaps a good idea to spring clean not only your friends list and see who's in there, but your history as well. Posts you might have posted when you were 15, 16 years old. You know, we've seen, uh, again, politicians or footballers or other people in the public eye fall foul of this, where a met tweet or a post they made 10, 15 years ago when they were a lot, lot younger, possibly more naive, comes back to Horton. So spring clean all that history and possibly your friends list as well. And when you post, make sure that you know who can see it. If you intend it for friends only, make sure that it's set to personal. But as I said at the beginning, please be aware that anything you post is public and could be shared more widely. So final point really from us. And again, I'm really sorry if it's sounding really negative, but if you get it right, you can be careful online. You should have no problems and you can keep in touch with all those friends and former colleagues from other schools and, and nurseries that you've worked at and there won't be any problems. But if you get it wrong, it can be catastrophic to your current job and potentially even your broader career. You know, you could be sanctioned or dismissed and you could even be banned from working with children. So please do visit our website see our social media at work advice page for further information and guidance and if you've got any concerns whatsoever you can always get in touch with us in the usual way contact your regional officer the details of which are online or call the duty officer on 01332 372 337 okay martin so once again uh, here we are with our mythbusters Excellent. So those of you who are regular listeners will have noticed that we've almost managed to get through a whole episode without mentioning COVID, which I think would pretty much be the very first episode we've ever done where we've not mentioned COVID in the here and now, I think, because the whole time I've been doing this podcast has been during uh, COVID or post-COVID times, so to speak. So we're going to do a myth busting on COVID. So we nearly made it, but not quite. So the myth, Martin, is going to be that long COVID is not a disability, okay? So I think to begin with, what I'll do is I'll, I'll sort of describe maybe um, what our understanding of what long COVID is, and then you'll be able to answer maybe a bit better about uh, whether this is a myth or not. So long COVID is a condition where the coronavirus causes symptoms which lasts weeks or months after the infection. Sometimes it's called post-COVID syndrome or long tail COVID or probably other things as well that people have referred to it by. But most people know it as long COVID. The symptoms can be serious and can mean that you're not able to work. And the effects can also come and go, meaning that you may feel well one day and not the next. And I think also it's worth saying that these symptoms can vary as well as, as to what they are. It's not one obvious symptom that everyone with long COVID has. Right. So that's essentially what we're talking about when we're talking about long COVID. So the myth, once again, is long COVID is not a disability. Now, earlier this month, the Equality and Human Rights Commission published a statement on long COVID disability and the Equality Act. And it states that there continues to be discussion of the various symptoms related to COVID-19 that are often referred to as long COVID and whether or not they would constitute a disability under the Equality Act. Long COVID is not among the conditions currently listed in the Equality Act. It's not listed as one which is automatically a disability, such as cancer or HIV, multiple cirrhosis, etc. There is therefore not a clear case that all cases of long COVID will fall under the definition of disability as per the Equality Act. 
This doesn't affect whether or not long COVID might amount to a disability. It'll do so if it has substantial and long-term adverse impacts on their ability to carry out normal day-to-day -day activities. The Equalities and Human Rights Commission go on to say that they would recommend that employers continue to follow existing guidance when considering reasonable adjustments for disabled people and access to flexible working based on the circumstances of individual cases. So to be clear, this does not say that conditions arising as a result of long COVID do not have a disabling impact. It says that long COVID itself is not automatically a disability, but it does say that employers should continue to support workers affected by long COVID to make sure that they avoid the risk of inadvertent discrimination. I appreciate okay. that's a little bit complicated, so it's I think we might need to unpick it a little bit. Yeah, we might do. So uh, maybe if I can just give you an example. Um, I have personally seen in the course of my case with occupational health reports that are talking about the effects of long COVID, saying things uh, along the lines of that the provisions of the Equality Act could apply as uh, this is likely to be a long term chronic condition that has the ability to be or to have a sustained substantial impact on activities. So could it in that sense be considered, you know, under the Equality Act? Absolutely, it could. And the language you've used there is really important, that it has to have a long term or sustained impact on an individual's ability to carry out their normal day-to-day -day duties. So I'm assuming that the normal rules for sickness, absence and sick pay are likely to apply here so that if you're off work with long COVID, you know, it's going to count, you know, because I think there was a period of time uh, when COVID was at its height that if you were off work with COVID symptoms or you had to self-isolate, it wasn't counted or a lot of places were not counting it towards the absence. That's not the case for long COVID. No, it's not the case for long COVID. Normal rules for sickness, absence and sick pay apply now if you're off work because of COVID or long COVID. So, so what should an employer be doing if somebody has long COVID? Regardless of what somebody is off with, your employer should understand that your will require time off so that you can recover. And that's the same for COVID and long COVID. In particular, your employer needs to understand that long COVID can come and go and they should provide you with support whilst you're off. It's important that they recognise that being off sick can make some people feel isolated. Um, and so some people might need support to transition back to work. And things that can help whilst you're off include things like occupational health assessment or phased return to work to support you back into the workplace once you are feeling better. So can I take this to the sort of the very extreme end of long COVID and the sickness absence? And what if what would happen, Martin, if someone was basically as a result of long COVID unable to probably ever resume their substantive post? What what could a workplace, a school, a nursery, a college, wherever our members are working, what could happen to them? What could the employer do under those circumstances? We hope it wouldn't get this far, but your employer should do everything that they can along the way to help you. This could include things like working reduced hours or change duties. Your employer should seek all medical and occupational health support that is available. But ultimately, if you are off for a sustained period of, you know, 12 months or longer, then it is the situation that your employer could decide to start uh, capability proceedings due to your continued absence. 
Um, now, if that was to happen, we would advise that members do get in touch with their regional officer or with the duty officer hotline so that we can give them casework support. I assume at the moment we perhaps don't know, when I say we, I mean all of us, don't know perhaps as much about long COVID as perhaps one day we will do. Is it possible that the guidance around this could change in the future? Very much so. COVID and long COVID are still emerging conditions. And until we have had uh, a few test cases in court, it's impossible for us to know exactly how long COVID should be treated. As things develop, we will keep members up to date and we will keep speaking with government and employers to make sure that their policies reflect the latest medical understanding on this condition. The joint education unions, which includes us, have prepared a long COVID protocol, have, have we not? Yeah, and the long COVID protocol is available to download on the COVID pages of our website, community-tu.org. The long COVID protocol, which has been agreed with all the education unions, sets out some standards that we hope employers will adopt in order to ensure that when they are supporting their employees, their workers who might be suffering and struggling with long COVID, that they're doing so in a consistent and understanding and compassionate way. Absence will still be regarded as sickness absence and recorded as such, but people will continue to be paid. They'll continue to have support from medical practitioners. They'll be continued to be included in any meetings uh, as a result of absence management processes, and they'll continue to get support from occupational health and GP and be paid for uh, any medical appointments and treatment that they might need to attend. So sorry to jump in on your myth busting, Martin, but I, I I think listening to you that perhaps the one thing that, that we've not mentioned so far it may be worth mentioning is risk assessments. Now I said at the very start on the introduction to this section that one person's condition may be very different from another's. Uh, you know the symptoms they're experiencing can differ on an individual basis and so it might be a really good idea that a risk assessment is, is done uh, with individuals. Absolutely and the second part of the protocol does mention that staff with long Covid symptoms who can work will have robust health and safety risk assessments undertaken looking at the work environment, work activity and individual factors that may put them at risk of harm. Because as you've mentioned, everybody who suffers with long COVID will experience it in a different way. And the employer has a duty of care to take steps to reduce the risk of harm. We'd also like to see employers offering full pay for a minimum of 12 months, although this I'll be honest, is a difficult sell. We also need to remind employers that although, as we've discussed, long COVID does not currently feature on its own as a condition listed under the Equality Act, we must recognise that it can have a disabling impact and where long COVID sufferers are experiencing extended waiting times for NHS treatments or therapies, we would like the employer at its discretion to consider supporting employees to access those. As I said, if people would like to read the long COVID protocol, it's available on our website, www.community-tu.org. And I think, Martin, I can safely say that is another myth busted. Boom! 
So unfortunately, that's all we have time for this month. All that remains to be said is a reminder that we would love to get you involved with the union in some capacity and that there are a plethora of options available to you. So if you're interested in being involved in any way, shape or form, please do get in touch. Plethora is a great word, by the way. It is. It is indeed. Um, We have loads of training courses, over 650. So please do have a look on the community website, see if there's any training courses you're interested in and, and take part. A lot of them are online, so it should be really easy for you to have a go at some of those. I've mentioned some of them before. Similarly, we're still recruiting members for our policy forums. We've got e-policy groups on early years, supply and agency workers, curriculum, teacher pay and conditions, higher education. So if you are interested in helping to shape community policy, then again, please do get in touch. If you'd like more information on the union, whether that's advice uh, on support from our help pages or to find out more about the union and perhaps joining the union, you can do that on our website at www.community-tu.org. That's TU for Trade Union. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash community union. And you can also follow community on Twitter and Instagram. If you're a member and you need advice or casework support, please contact your regional office the details of which are online, or call the duty officer on 01332 372 337. And don't forget to like, subscribe and share the Education Policy Podcast with anyone and everyone you know. See you next month.